Okay, so we are up to Parak Zion. And even though the whole Sefer is called Sefer Shmuel, it's really Parak Zion that is the story of Shmuel. And this is when we see Shmuel's leadership. This is when we see what makes him so unique and such an incredible leader. And it's, it's kind of a shame that he only gets like one peric in which to shine, but he has many roles in his life. But this is the one where he, this is the chapter where he's the one who was really leading everything. He's the one who's um, guiding the people. And his leadership is absolutely revolutionary. It changes everything. And I think it's important to understand that the, there was a failure in the time of the Shoftim. There was a failure of leadership. And after the death of Yeshua, what we keep seeing, what we keep seeing are these cycles of leaders who come out and they help everybody and they do stuff, but we never quite see a major change in the people. Actually, the truth is, after Devorah's rule, there's like, a major tshuva there, and there is peace for 40 years. So maybe I'll make an exception for Dvorah. But in general, the time of the Shoftim was a, a time where the leaders were kind of, you know, temporary military heroes. They did their thing. They went home. There really isn't that guiding hand that we see when Shmuel comes on the scene. And it's interesting because we saw him in chapters you know, one, two, and three. And for the whole story of the capture of the Aron, we don't see Shmuel. Shmuel is not on the scene. They take the Ark to the war. The Aron goes to the war, chapter four. We don't hear from Shmuel. We don't know anything about Shmuel. At the beginning of chapter four, in Perikdal, the first book is Vahid Vah Shmuel, called Israel, whatever it says over there. It's not like he is involved in this whole scenario. And in fact, most of the Mepharshim say that that introduction is just saying that the prophecy that he had in chapter three about this terrible thing happening came about through what happened in this war. But he's not involved. Perak Dala, we don't see him. Perak Hay, we don't see him. Perak Vav, we didn't see him. But it seems hard to avoid the conclusion that he is operating behind the scenes. Because when Peric Zion opens, we see a tremendous sea change in the people. So let's get to the text. We'll screen share. Okay. All right, so I always like to look first at this edition. If you could see this edition, you know, gives you all the, the paragraphing. But I would, I would break up this chapter a little further. The, the truth is that the whole theme of the chapter is the leadership of Shmuel, but there's a lot that goes on here. Uh, the first Pasuk is set by itself, and it sort of belongs back in chapter six, because it sort of sums up chapter six. And then you have the first few Pesukim here, which talk about the effect of Beth, Gimel, and Dalah, which talk about the effect that Shmuel has on the people and they want to go back to Hashem. And then you have his, he organizes a kind of 
to feel a rally, we'll see this. And then there's a war with the Philistines. And the last, that goes on until verse 12. So we have here the prayer rally. And that's, that's for a um, couple of sukkim. And then we have Zion, Chet, Tet, Yud, Yud, This is all the war with the Philistines. And then the summation of his role as judge, Yigimel, Yudalit, with the enemies, and Tetzvav, Tetzayin, Yudzayin, with the Jewish people. So we'll go into the parak uh, more specifically. Okay, Pasuk Aleph. So the people of Kiryat Yarim bring the Aron, they come down to Beit Shemesh and they bring up the Aron to Kiryat Yarim. So we have here the map and you see that our Aron has gone from Shiloh to the battle to Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, and then to Beit Shemesh. And you see that there is a northern, a northern uh, direction to Kiryat Yarim, but it's not just the northern direction. Beit Shemesh is in a valley. It's very flat. Um, Kiryat Yarim, which is today Telstone, is in a mountain. We're already heading into the, the, the topography of Yishalayim, very hilly. So there's a sort of... Uh, uh, symbolism to that of the ark going up, going up to closer to where it's supposed to be in Shalayim. This is the northernmost border, according to Sefer Yeshua, of the tribe of Yehuda. And now we're sort of heading into the territory of Binyamin here and a little bit of Ephraim. And it's heading to where it's supposed to be. And we see here they bring the Aron to the house of a man named Avinadav. Debra Yamin identifies Avinadav and his family as Leviyam. And he sets aside, Kadesh usually means to set aside. He designates his son Elazar, Lishmort Aron Hashem. So we have to compare the fate of the people of Beit Shemesh who are punished when they interact with Aron and the people of Kiryat Yarim who seem to have gotten it right. And the Aron is there for a good long time. So what did the people of Kiryat Yarim do better than the people of Beit Shemesh? So we can start by saying the fact that they're ready to take on this challenge it is really, the, the Aron Hashem has proved itself to be a very dangerous object. It's a, it's a really hot potato. And everybody, all the Plishti cities are just get rid of it, get rid of it. And the Beit Shemesh people are also in the same kind of place, like let's take it away, take it away. But the people of Kerat Yarim go to get it. They're up for the challenge. They want to take care of this holy object. So that's one great Milo. The other thing is they bring it to a specific house at the hill where Beit, uh, Beit Abinadab is. They give it a special place. It's not on a rock outside. They bring it to someone's house. It's something that needs to be guarded and kept hidden. And in addition, number three, 
right? Number one is they went to get it. And you see they, the Anshay Kirtan, there's a whole delegation. A lot of people go. It's, it's a tremendous honor. They give the Ark honor. And then they make a special place for it, the House of Avina Zava. Then they make a special person for it. So there's three tremendous criteria for the people of Kiryat Arim that they take the Aron and they have this person set aside to guard it. So we see here that it's come to a good place. Now, if you look at Tehillim, Ayin um, um, 78, you see that a lot of um, discussion there of the, the end of, Sh of Shiloh. I should have opened that for you, um, but just trust me on this one. And it says there, right, Vayitosh Mishkan Shiloh, that Hashem left Mishkan Shiloh and he abandoned it. And so what happens here, and that's not stated here, and David mentions it in Tehillim, and the Chazal talk about it, but basically the era of Shiloh is over. So if the Aron is in Kirat Yarim, where is the rest of the Mishkan? Where is the Mizbeach? Where do the Kohanim go? And it seems from Chazal that there, everything is moved to a place called Nov. And after Nov, Nov does, meets a sticky end later on. Chapter 22, I think. I'm not 100% sure on that one. And then everything is moved to Give On, which is like in my backyard from here in Give On. So there is a, um, there's a place here where we don't have that central place of worship. It's, you know, it's, it's again, it's like the Arun that goes into captivity. You don't use it, you lose it. So the whole Mishkan is in different places. And this is a situation of Golas. So, um, um, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Emes Yaakov talks about it, that this is a situation of Golas. And that's why the people of Beit Shemesh are punished because when they see the Aron, they should be full of remorse. They should be recognizing their sins. They should be sad that they, that they experienced a situation of Golas, but they're happy because they're, they're oblivious and they're not, they're not seeing what, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from them. So we have here a situation where the Aron is in Golas. And in fact, Rabbi Yaakov also says in the, in the, it's, the Chazal talk about it, in the second temple, in the Bayat Shemi, the Aron is missing there also. So we don't have a complete Geula, you know, Be'ezrat Hashem, Halavai, V'yameinu, V'meher V'yameinu. In the meantime, there's Golas. So this is the end of Shiloh. Now, we stopped looking at the Aron, and now let's look at the Jewish people, right? Pasuk Bet. Miyom Shevet Ha'aron B'Kiryat Yarim, Vayibu Hayamim, Vayiyu Esrim Shana. Vayinohu Kol Beit Yisrael Acharei Hashem. I actually love this passage. It's, it's beautiful and evocative. It's very poetic. And it was. From the day that the Aron dwelt or sat in Kiryat Yarim, the days lengthened and it became 20 years. And all the house of Israel were drawn after Hashem. Okay, this passage requires a lot of discussion. Okay. We said that the 
people of Kiryat Yarim, finally, we talked so much about it last week, about how we needed to see honor and reverence for things of Kedusha. And we see how the people of Kiryat Yarim honor the Aron. The Aron stays there for 20 years. Okay, let's leave the 20 years on the side. During that time, or possibly after that time of the 20 years, the children, the house of Israel, are drawn after Hashem. Now, the word by Yinavu, it's very um, uh, unclear. There's a few different ways. The two main ways of understanding is that by Yinavu is drawing. They're being pulled, they're being attracted to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And the other one is as in we have Mehi, the Hi Tamurim, as in mourning. They mourned after Hashem. Something is changing in the Jewish people. They're starting to feel the sadness, the gullus that I mentioned the people of Beit Shemesh don't actually get it that they're in gullus. There's a uh, sort of like what's, you know, they don't really understand, but after time passes and they see what's going on, then they start feeling a longing for Kodesh Baruch Hu. What brings this about? And this is a very important question. We have to look at ourselves and say, what is it that brings people closer to Kodesh Baruch Hu? We could probably all of us say, what distances people from Kodesh Baruch Hu? But what brings us closer to Hashem is a little harder to put your finger on. So Rashi says here, they saw the events. In other words, because they saw that the sons of Eli were punished and the great tragedies that came upon the Jewish people because of those sins. And they also saw God's strong hand against the Philistines. So that is one aspect of it. But he goes on. So now we're bringing Shmuel into the picture. Lechazer means to go around and around. In colloquial Hebrew, it's, you know, when, when a guy is interested, interested in a girl, but in the context here, we're saying that Shmuel goes around. Now at the end of chapter seven, the end of Zion, we learned that Shmuel had a fixed circuit. He was the first circuit judge. And he went around to the people. And Rashi attributes the tshuva that the people start wanting to do and the, the being drawn after Hashem to Shmuel. And I submit to you, if you want to say, <clears throat> if we want to analyze this, because we, like, we'd love to bottle this, what makes a person draw closer to Hashem? What's the formula? So part of it, you could say that the Rashi is saying is that the events that you see, you live in this world, you know, you can be moved by what you see around you, or you can be oblivious. You have a choice, right? Here in Eretz uh, I, I think that most people um, experience you know, HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu's actions in, in a different way. There's a certain something that goes on that you just sort of feel that. But you could totally ignore it. 
And we've seen that also. But you can come out of the Six Day War and say, oh my gosh, what a miracle, right? Or you could say, well, you know, the Israelis had a great army. This actual conversation took place, I'm told, after a, a, um, a very famous Christian um, evangelical pastor came to see the Golan Heights after 67. And watching, looking down at the whole Galil from the Golan Heights, he said, oh, this is a miracle. God did a miracle here. And of course, he was talking to Israeli general, Matagor. And Matagor said, no, actually, Israel has a strong army. So yeah, that was dumb. And six years later, that strong army proved that without God, it can't really do much. So that was just really sad. But it just shows you that you can look at everything that goes on and you can say, you know, the events can change your perspective, on the other hand. And I, I remember this after the Gulf War. <laughs> after the Gulf War, there were miracles, you know. It was unbelievable, all these missiles that came at Israel and there was, there was like one person who was like hit, right? It was, I mean, I'm not minimizing that, that was very sad, but like most of the time of people were in the Miklat and the missile hit the house. People were in the house, they hit the Miklat. There were times when people were between the house and the miklat and, and both things were just like, crazy things happen. And I was sure Mashiach is coming. Everyone must see all these miracles. And immediately Mashiach will come and, and then nothing happened. Nothing happened. So you could, you can, you know, see world events and not react and not understand what you're looking at. So I, my, my claim would be, my sense of the situation, is that the second half is of what Rashi says is the more powerful half, and that is the leadership. Because a strong leader, a person like Shmuel, can really, really inspire and change people, right? World events, you can interpret this way, you can interpret that way, you can choose to ignore it. But a strong leader, Everyone should have in their lives um, great figures to look up to, mentors and, and teachers to uh, inspire you. This is really the, the real difference. If you, if you analyze what went on in Sefer Shoftim as compared to this discussion in, in Sefer Shmuel, right? The, the Medrash says, I don't have this Medrash for you, but the Medrash says the, the reason that so many people died in the Civil War at the end of Sefer Shoftim is that the leaders were to blame for not um, helping the people. The Medrash is very specific. It says they should have gone around, picked up their, you know, their cloaks, the great people, the great ones, the teachers, they should have gone around from city to city teaching people and um, helping them and showing them how to deal with everything. And they didn't. They said, well, you know, I got to deal with my, my light, my, uh, my garden, you know, it's Voltaire. I have to cultivate my garden. I've got to, you know, take care of my, my land. And the, the Medrash criticizes the leaders at the time of Shoftim and saying, they did not take care of the people. Then along comes a figure like Shmuel, who 
his whole entire life is devoted to the Jewish people. He goes around, he teaches, he's, he, he's a keeper of personality, never seen anything like this before. And he goes from city to city and the people, they're drawn after Kaddish Baruch Hu in the merit of Shmuel. That's something that we've never seen before. So if you ask yourself, what, what brings you closer to Hashem? I, I, you know, Rosh is giving you two reasons here. And I would, I would submit my own opinion, my, my opinion, it's you don't have to agree with me, is that the power of a person like Shmuel, I mean, I'm, I'm so struck by uh, Rabbi Edelstein, I mentioned him last time, the Zechotalik uh, Racha, how the, when they made a protest on Benebrak, he said, greet them with food. Only a great person and a great leader can take such a situation fraught with so much danger and give it a, a, a positive spin, give it a way to be makareb l'bavot. Leadership is critical and crucial. Can't emphasize it enough. Okay, now let's talk about the numbers. The numbers here are very, very problematic. And I organized a little bit of a timeline for you in order to make it clear, okay? Okay, pardon my, uh, <laughs> my sloppiness here. The timeline of these 20 years is we're gonna follow now the Seder Olam. The Seder Olam is a medrash that gives a timeline of the Tanakh, okay? Now, it has to base itself on things that are directly said in the text. So whatever we see here are numbers that come directly from the text. And then the Seder Olam and the Chazal make, put it together. So we're told that Eli dies at 98. And he judged Israel for 40 years, which means he became a judge at the age of 58. So at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, we see the Eli Yoshev. Eli was sitting, but the Vav is missing. So the Chazal say Eli Yashav. That day he became Shofet. He was going out the whole time, but then he became shofar. And that is the time when Hannah came to pray. Therefore, Shmuel was born in Eli's first year because Hannah Dobbins then. So he's, Eli is 59 when Shmuel is born. And when Eli dies, Shmuel is 39. So I'm sorry about the math here. I tried to make it as clear as possible. Now we see the Aronis and Kiryat Yerim for 20 years. And David, who we haven't met yet, but David is king for 40 years. And he is a king for seven of those 40 years in Hebron, over Yehuda alone, and then 33 years over the whole nation of Israel. And at the seventh year of David, the Aron, he brings it up from Kirat Yarim to Yerushalayim. And I was 20 years in Kirat Yarim. I hope you're still following me. That's why I wanted to put it on a paper. If the Aron is in Kirat Yarim for 20 years, okay, then David becomes king when the Aron is there for 13 years, okay? That means Shmuel, at the time that David becomes king, right? Shmuel is 13 years plus 39, okay? Which means he is 52 years old. 
And that's when David becomes king. That's when um, uh, Shaul dies. And of those 13 years, Shmuel is the leader for 11 years. Shaul is king for two years. And, um, and then Shaul and Shmuel both die the same year. And we have a count of Shmuel being 52 years at his death. This is the, the, the idea of the Seder Olam. I'm just gonna stop the screen share for a second. Okay. Uh, I just hope that you're all like following all the, the, the math. Those are numbers based on what's in the text. In other words, these, 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 um, these are givens. These are givens. It says that, you know, David was king for 40 years and the ark was there for 20 years and, you know, and Shaul ruled for two years. There's a very big problem with this whole chronology. I don't want to spend any more time on it. I just want to give you the problems, okay? The problems are that, um, number one, if Shoal is king for two years, an awful lot happens in those two years. It's kind of wild. Um, it says that he's king for two years. But, you know, there's like the two years, so much happens as when he's king, and then so much happens after David is anointed, and what's going on with that? And then, you know, Shoal is a handsome young man when we meet him. So given that he has grown children, uh, you know, so when he dies, he has to be at least 58 because he has something like that because he has, you know, 40-year-old sons. Let's just give him that. They're all from different wives. He was 18. I, I don't know. You have to figure that, you know, then you're trying to figure that he was 56 years old when all the girls are like, oh, you know, can't stop looking at him. There's something, uh, you know, there's some problems here. And also the 20-year thing. If you're saying the Aaron was there for 20 years, when did they actually do the tshuva? Was that the beginning of the 20 years? Did they do the tshuva at the end of the 20 years? Did they do the tshuva during the 20 years? It's very confusing. It's very confusing. So I'm giving you the chronology of the Chazal, of the Seder Olam. So you know that's, that's how they un understand it and they work everything out. Now I'm going to show you um, the Gemara here. Okay. So the Gemara says, uh, okay. The Gemara determines the number of years. I went through this with you. The Gemara explained that 20 years, 10 years Shmuel reigned alone, one year Shmuel and Shaul reigned together, two years Shaul reigned alone, seven years of David's reign, and that's how it calculates the 20 years. Then the Gemara here says, how could it be which Shmuel was old if he died at 52? It's not so old, right? He was 52 years old. And then, right, then they talk about if someone dies before 60, that's considered premature death. But if he dies at 52, that's the, the death of Shmuel. So like, first of all, don't take any of this as you know, pertaining to anyone you know, right? But you're supposed to like celebrate turning 60 because it's a big thing. But generally speaking, we understand that David Amalek says, people are supposed to live 70 years. That's a normal lifespan and 80 is a nice long lifespan. So that's when you celebrate these things. But here it says, old age sprang upon Shmuel. 
because it says, I'm sorry I made shalking a regret. And Shmuel said to Hashem, you considered me like Moshe and Aaron, as it says in Tehillim, Moshe and Aaron, Mekon, Shmuel, Bekor, Shmuel. That's Tehillim 99, in Kabbalah Shabbos. Shmuel, according to this Gemara, is davening that Shaul should not die while he's still alive. The Holy One said, what shall I do? Shall Shaul die now? Shmuel doesn't want that. Shall Shmuel die young? Right? Then the people will say bad things about Shmuel. Why did he die so young? Right? Can they, both of them stay alive? Then what am I going to do? David's supposed to take charge now, right? There's no, one kingdom doesn't intersect another kingdom at any point. Therefore, the Holy One, blessed be he said, I will spring old age upon him and everyone will think that he is elderly. Okay? Kafzal of Zikna, right? You know, and Shaul was sitting and begiva tahasa eshel barama, it says in Chafet, in Shmuel al Chafet. And what does it mean? Shaul was sitting under the Giva Tachata Eshel Barama. Ela Lamalacha, me Garam Shaul Sheshab Begiva Shteshanu and Matza, Filotosho Shmuel Ramati. Because the Rama, Rama is Shmuel, because Shmuel davened that Shaul should live. And therefore, uh, therefore, uh, Shaul was alive because of. Shmuel's prayer, and Shmuel became old prematurely. It's an interesting situation. Okay, just, just for very briefly, I'll tell you that the Abarbanel and the, and the Ralbag have a lot of trouble with these numbers, and it's very difficult really to plug in these numbers and make sense of them. <clears throat> of course, you can't argue with the numbers that are in the text. That's what the that's what we see. But the Abarbanel says, really, it was 20 years, but there was a lot longer time because the, the years that um, David was anointed and Shaul was chasing after him was, um, uh, let me just go back a second. Because it says in chapter 13 that Shaul reigned for two years, there's a lot of problems in that Pasuk, but we'll go there. If he reigned for two years, so the Seder Olam is, is taking that as a given. You have to put everything in his life in two years. But the Abiramel says, oh, he reigned for two years, then David was anointed. So really he wasn't actually king because David was anointed. So the Abiramel says there were another 15 years of the cat and mouse game that Shoal and David played. And really Shoal was king for about 15 years. You know, two where he was, you know, wholeheartedly king and 15 where he wasn't actually, but in fact, very complicated. I hope that um, I was clear here. If anyone has any questions, you can get me at the end of the class. Okay, let's go on. Pasuk Gimel. And right away, all of a sudden, we find out that Shmuel is indeed on the scene. Shmuel is involved here. And Shmuel says to them, do you really want to do tshuva? If you really want to do tshuva, this is what you have to do. Okay? 
And the Malbim here asks, he should have said, he says, so the Malbim breaks down this passage very beautifully. He says, oh, there's a lot of steps involved in Shuba. If with all your hearts, this is this wants to say that a condition of tshuva, of true tshuva, is um, purifying yourself, that they should return and repent and leave their previous deeds and do good and not evil in the future. And they have to be in thought and in deed. And that's why it says, leave the evil in your thoughts, get rid of the gods, <clears throat> the um, strange gods in your midst, in yourselves, in your thoughts, and then take away the sin in actuality, take away the ashtarot. Uh, by the way, I did want to show you a little bit uh, images. I had fun with this. There's a nice image of the Baal. Baal usually looks a little bit like some kind of Greek, you know, God of War, Mars, or something. And here's some Ashtoritz for you. They all look like, you know, plump little women. Sometimes they're also sheep or other kinds of creatures. That's the fertility goddesses. And then there's the Asherah trees, the trees which they turn into idols, or sometimes they use them to mask the, uh, you know, very immoral rites that were going on. Right, so they would really round you. Anyway, so I thought that would be fun for you to see those images. Get rid of these idols. So oh, again, we have to emphasize, they don't, they haven't left God. It's just, there's also God and there's also idols and everything kind of works together. It's just sort of, you know, the pushed him. We'll put dog on there, we'll put the iron there. It's all good. So the Malbim says, take away the, the, the foreign gods from your hearts, take them away physically. Prepare your hearts to God, right? And there should be nothing but God. And he says, right? The conscience, right? Your heart has to be ready for Hashem. You have to open yourself up for that. And you have to serve Hashem levado, ibdu levado. Do not serve God as a cholent. Everybody together. Only God. Enog Mavada. That's another one of our important life lessons. You can't mish in, you know, your good luck and the things you rely on. You only have to rely on a Kaddish Baruch That's your reliant. And then Hashem will save you from the flishtim. And that's another important thing to remember. When there's a true tshuva, HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes through. When there's tefillah, when there's tshuva, when you're coming back to Hashem. And in fact, Eliyahu Navi also makes this thing. You can't have Hashem and Baal, right? You can't, you know, in, in Yiddish we say this, you can't dance at two weddings. You have to choose. And it's only Hashem. And they comply. And this is the amazing thing. Pasik Dalad by Yasiru Bene Israel Tabalimit Hashtarod by Abduit Hashem Labado. 
a tremendous thing happens here. It's a complete and total tshuva, right? And Shmuel wants to make it even more solid. Okay, so Pasakay. But Yoma Shmuel kips to its Khan Mitzpah. Gather everyone to Mitzpah, right? A, 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 there was a great battle there at the time of Yeshua, and this was a, a there's a Mizbeach there, and it, uh, it was a, a general gathering place. So all of Israel could gather to Mitzvah, and I will daven for you to God. Now, if you notice here in Pasuk Gimel, by Yom Shmuel, I'll call Beit Yisrael. Beit Yisrael, we understand to mean the women as well. But what happens here, and this is an important distinction, in Pasuk Hay, Kibbutz would call Yisrael. This is only the men, and we'll see why that's significant. So all the men gather at Mitzvah, and Shmuel is ready to daven for them, and we have a very tremendous situation going on here. And Halavai, you know, we should see such a tremendous shuva rally. When, when we see Jews getting together, you know, um, just recently, and you know, on Yantav, and, and you know, we have like Siyum Shas, you see this tremendous power of all the Jews together. And Shmuel is orchestrating this, and Shmuel is leading this, and the Jews are doing what he says in Pasuk Bav. They gathered at Mitzvah, and they drew water and they poured it out before God, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, we have sinned to God. And Shmuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzvah. This ma'amad, this prayer rally, this whatever you want to call it, this like, you know, MetLife Stadium, this gathering is powerful. And they are doing all of the necessary steps. The Malbin takes them one by one. They gathered. Plus, if you take a look at the Malbin, you see number one, they gathered and this shows unity to serve God, all of them together. Number two, they drew water. And if this is crying, there's different things. I'm going to talk about the water in a minute, the drawing of water, what that is. Number three, they fasted. The idea of fasting is to uh, um, criticize your sins, the sins of the individual, the sins of the many, to distance yourself from them. Fasting shows your remorse, right? And Hashem says, right? Hashem says, the real, the fast that I want is not just, you know, don't eat, right? And, and keep doing bad stuff, right? Yoel says, tear your hearts, don't tear your clothes. And not interested in outward displays. We want a real show of remorse. And here you see the fasting, they're saying, we sin. And then number four, there you have vidui. Fasting, Viju, a tremendous national Yom Kippur is going on here, right? Number five, and the sins between man and his friend, that Shuba won't help, you know, that you have to forgive your friend, otherwise God won't forgive you. Then it says, Shmuel judged, so the Malbim makes this beautiful list of how this Shuba rally 
covered all the bases, the fasting, the remorse, the the getting rid of all the idols, hoping for the future to have a new slate, a new start. It's very, very inspiring. Let's talk about the water for a minute. What's the deal with the water? So there's a number of ways of understanding this. Um, Rashi says, the Targum says, which means pour your hearts in Shuba like water before Hashem. Now, don't forget, Shmuel is the son of a mother who davened, right? But she says, she uses this word to Eli. She says, I poured out my heart. I'm a woman of bitter spirit. I poured out my heart. So the first explanation would be that they're not actually spilling water, they're spilling their hearts. But it does say they drew water and they poured it. So Rashi says, according to the literal meaning, this is a sign of submission. I am before you like water that is poured out. And here you see, okay, the, the, the water symbolism, spilling water as submission, that's the idea that I'm just, I, I, I'm nothing. I submit myself to you, Hashem, I'm nothing. I want you to forgive me because I am, you know, just this low element. Of course, the Abba says water always symbolizes Torah. So it says here that um, uh, they poured out, they drew water and they poured it. And the Abba says, they were drawing from the Torah. They were learning, and they poured out their hearts in Shuba, in in Torah. I wanted to show you the one phone that I forgot to take out. Of here. At least we take out all the phones, so they won't bother me. Okay, sorry. So the the first one we see here in Eicha, right? Shivchi kamayim libech nochach b'nei Hashem. The the idea of remorse, pour your heart out before God. And Yirmiyahu, both Yirmiyahu and Yishayahu connect water also. Yirmiyahu says, um, my people did two sins. They left me, Hashem says, a source of living water. They left Hashem, who is a, a well of living water, to dig borot, pits that are broken, which will not contain water. And Yeshaya says, right? That can be turned into joy. Draw the water from the fountains of Yeshua. And we say that right at the at the um, Abdullah. So we have these beautiful ideas about water, and the you know the water turns from the you know the pouring out the heart and the submission, and then you could take it and use use it for simcha, uh, for a mitzvah, simcha beina shoeva, and that's that's when Yona. Uh, receive prophecy through that simcha. So you see this am amazing event, 
As a matter of fact, um, Rabbi Yaakov says, he told my husband he thinks this is the source for the, uh, the Minhag of Tashlet. And later on, um, he found it in uh, Orochayim that says this is actually the source for the Minhag of Tashlet. You know, where you're just throwing away your sins with the water. Very interesting. Okay, but that's all really nice. And this is what the Jews are doing. But you, the Plishtim don't get that. And this is where things kind of change here. So we have all this tshuva, all this achzis, all this, you know, ben chabero, Shmuel orchestrating the, the greatest spiritual revolution since Matan Torah. <laughs> or maybe, yeah, I think we might say that. They turn themselves around so completely. But the Christians don't know. They said, oh boy, the Jews are gathering and it's only men. Remember I said the men is a significant thing. Oh no. The Plishtim heard the Jews gathered at Mitzvah and the Plishtim officers gathered against Israel and the children of Israel heard and they were very frightened. The, the Plishtim, like, you know, they're in charge at this point. They've won the major battle. They've been in charge for some time. And what are those Jews up to? Let's put a stop to it. They've got their great leader there, Shmuel. I said, please, do not be silent now. Cry out to Hashem, and he will save us from the hand of the Plishtim. This is just unbelievable, right? And this is one of the things that, you know, you, you wonder in, in the next chapter, like how this, this amazing event could be um, swept away over there and, and the people could forget what Shemuel did for them. He takes a telechalav, and telechalav is a, it says, odoyo nechalav, a baby lamb. And he makes an offering out of it. It's an unusual offering. So there's two reasons that are given for this, right? Um, uh, okay, they're not, not right here. The two reasons. One reason is that it's a small animal, so it burns faster, so we can turn our attention to the business at hand. And the other is that it's a symbol of a child. And we're saying to Baruch we are your children. We are your children. You are our father. Take care of us. And Shmuel cries out to Hashem for the sake of Israel, and Hashem answers him. And from there, David Hamelch says, and I mentioned this before, Moshe Aaron Bekoano, Shmuel Bekoishmo, We say it every Friday in Kabbalah Shabbos. Moshe and Aaron are God's Kohanim, and Shmuel among those who call his name. Right up there with Moshe and Aaron, both of them. Those who call out to Hashem, and he answers them. Right. Of course, it says in Ashri, Karov Hashem l'chol karov, l'chol Hashem is close to all those who call after him. But here we have Shmuel and Hashem, and they're really tight, and Hashem listens. Pasekiyod, v'yehi Shmuel ma'aleha ola, u'plishtim nekshula melchama b'Yisrael. And while Shmuel is bringing up this carbon, right, the little sheep, that symbolic sheep, the plishtim come near to war. 
And God thundered in a great voice on that day on the Christian, and he confused them, and they were beaten before Israel. Now, I would like to show you what the redox is here. Oh dear. Not the redox. Okay. It must be the Rav Karah. I'm not, I'm not remembering who says this, but we see that, right, the voice of Hashem has a special power, right? Um, it actually, oh, there was a Malbim, but it was in the previous Pasuk. The Malbim, by Aneu, by Arim Bekolo, Kol Hashem, I'm sorry, I, I was not seeing the Malbim here, so I thought I saw it in the Radak, but the Malbim was in the previous passage. The voice of Hashem came to the Navi, and it divided into several paths. As it says in the, in Bayikra, right? We heard the voice of Hashem speaking to him. Moshe heard, and the children did not hear. That could be that it was a slow voice, right? But it says Hashem's voice, Kol Hashem Shobir Arazim. In Tehillim Chavtet, which is the Tehillim that we say on Shabbos, right? Um, all about the Kol Hashem Alamayim. As we say when we bring back the Aron, uh, the Torah to the Aron, right? And it talks about the voice of God. So many miracles of the voice of God. So the Malbim is bringing that up. The Kol God's amazing thunderous voice that he thundered on the Plishtim, the B'nai Israel do not hear it. Can you imagine a greater miracle than that, right? And here we have another example of God's great voice. If you recall in chapter three, we saw that the voice of Hashem was emanating from the Kodesh Kodeshim skipping over Eli, who didn't hear it, and coming to Shmuel. And that was a miracle of God's voice. Here's another miracle of God's voice. He's thundering on the Plishtim in this tremendous voice, terrifying them, and the Jews don't hear it. It's kind of unbelievable to think of such a thing. Another thing I want to mention about this passage, this is called Binyan Av, the building of the Father. There are many ways, or the Yossi Aglili says there are different ways of darshan the Torah. One of the ways we darshan the Torah is called binyan av, and that means that there is what we might, we might want to call it a daddy pasuk. This is the daddy pasuk. In other places, anywhere it says, mehuma by yehumeim, that God confused them, he caused them to panic, it's because of thunder. Here we, can, we connect God's thunderous voice and the, the panic, and any place else that it says God confused people, it's because of thunder. That's called the ben. Those are the, the you know, should we say, the, the children psukim. And that happens at Yamsuf when God um, caused a mehuma on the, on the mitzvah, and also in the time of Sisra, right, when God confuses Sisra and his men. 
So you see here, this is a very significant Pusik. It's, it's a Binyan Ab. So we see here, this is like, this is the way I really love the, the biblical wars to go. God takes care of everything. The Jews don't have to do much. God thunders in the Pushtim, they panic, and they be by This is in the previous passage. The Malbim says, Mass Mum. The Jews didn't have to do anything. The Pushtim were attacking each other out of fear and panic. And the children of Israel went out of Mitzvah. They chased the Philistines who were running away. They struck them until south of Beit Kar. We don't know exactly where that is, right? But it's a great distance. We see the word. Here we are in Mitzvah. They're chasing them. They're running back to their land. And they are finished. And Shmuel took a rock and he put it between mitzvah and between a place called Shane, right? A, 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 a rock that came up like a tooth. And he called that Evan Ezer and he said, until here, Hashem helped us. If you remember back in Perak Dalid, the they camped at Evan Ezer and that was unfortunately not where Hashem helped them. But here he make he calls the place Evan Ezer because there Hashem helped them. And now we have the rest of this parak, it's only a few psukim, is about the whole period of time when Shemuel was a leader. Because already in chapter eight, we're at the end of that period. So now we see in Yud Gimel and Yudalid, you're gonna see the foreign relations. And the Plishtim submitted, and they did not come into the border of Israel. And the hand of God was strong in the, um, against the Philistines all the days of Shmuel. So the, this border war, right, these are the Plishti cities, Ekron, Gat, after Ashkenazah. The Plishtim were pushed back out of the Jewish territories. And this had, they had been in charge for many years, many years. All the days of Shmuel, we don't hear from the Philistines and the Pesachidalans. So back to our map, Ekron got, right? Ekron and Gat came back to Israel. So they pushed them all the way to the coast. And this was during the time of Shmuel that the Jews had the upper hand. And also at this time, the other more indigenous uh, tribes that were left around the Amori, they already saw that if you know the Jews had the upper hand, so they made peace as well. Now Tedvav and Tetzayin and Yudzayin are talking about the career of Shmuel as a judge. If you notice, if you're watching the screen share, you can see that the Ralbag here goes into like a real long Megillah. Just a one word to explain to you what that is. At the end of every section, so this, this could probably be called the end of a section because we, we're kind of summing up Shmuel's career, although he's not leaving the scene. You know, when and Shmuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So now we're summing up Shmuel's career, so to speak. Uh, like I said, he's not leaving the scene yet. We still have what to do with him. But then the Ralbag goes into a whole discussion of all the lessons that we learn from this whole situation. Now, and he went year by year 
and he went around Beit-El, Gilgal, Mitzvah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Now, I mentioned before that Shmuel is a circuit judge. He is going around. He is teaching and admonishing and making peace and judging uh, financial things. And everyone knew Shmuel's coming to town in the next couple of weeks. I have a problem. I have a Shaila. I'm waiting for Shmuel. Shmuel was always going to be turning up soon. This is one of the greatest differences between Shmuel and any other Jewish leader. He was out there. He was among the people. He went to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. This is a tremendous greatness. And also another greatness is that he judged Israel his whole life. He was from the age of two, he was already consecrated to be a Jewish leader and a servant of God. The next part, and here we have, he returned to Ramah because there was his home. And there he judged Israel and he built him his Be'ach Hashem. So we see here another important thing is that he goes back home. Now, he can't go back to Shiloh because he grew up in Shiloh. He goes back to Ramah. Shiloh's already ice. It's over. But we have a question here. Very beautiful medrash, right? Um, and that's where I wanted to show you a doc. Okay. And from all the far places, except for the ones that are mentioned here, he would go around, they would come there. Um, they would come to Ramah to judgment. And our rabbis darshan. What does it mean? He returned to Ramah because his home was there. It's not necessary to say, that it's enough to say, and he returned to Ramah. And there he judged Israel. Why do we want to say Kisham Beito? There his house was there. And the Chazal say, Bechal Makom, Shehayaholech Beito Imo. Everywhere he went, he took his house with him. What does that mean? Klomar, that is to say, This wants to tell you that he never, never, took anything from anyone, only his own, he could have asked, right, for a particular, uh, you know, an animal to ride on. He was the leader. He deserved certain uh, help, but he only used his own things. And it says there in all those places, every place he went, there was his house. And here's another example of the greatness of Shmuel. Right. We've said so much about it, his closeness to Hashem, his willingness to go out to the people, his connection to people, his selflessness. Now we see that here is a person who took nothing from anyone. And in an age where so many people go into politics for the salary, in an age where everybody expects somebody to get something for something, like everybody has an agenda, you see the unbelievable level of a person like Shmuel who took absolutely nothing for himself. Wherever he went, he took his food with him. He took the things he needed to sleep with him. He never took anything from anybody. I, I don't want to make it sound like there, there are no other ways because when we get to Elisha, you'll see that Elisha 
was put up regularly um, in Shunam. There was a woman who had a whole little, you know, uh, apartment for him. So it's not like it couldn't happen. But you see that this is what was one of the great things about Shmuel. He, he didn't want to take from it. He only wanted to give. And this is something that is such a beautiful thing to see in a Jewish leader. He's such an ideal Jewish leader. And by the way, in Israel, Parsha Shavua is Korach. And Moshe, when Korach um, starts up with him, Moshe says, I never took anything from anyone. So this is a great connection of Moshe and Shmuel. Moshe says, I never took anything from anyone. And the Haftorah, it's not actually this parrot. It's actually Parak Yudbet and Shmuel Aleph, where Shmuel is actually retiring. He's anointed the king, uh, Shaul, and then he kind of retires. And in that speech, when he's retired, I think of chapter 12 as Shmuel's retirement speech. In that speech, he says, I never took anything away. Did I ever take anything from you? And that's the Haftorah this week for Parshas Korah. So you should um, take note of it. And that was the greatness of Moshe, and that was the great, greatness of Shmuel. And by the way, it's not in the text, but the, the Chazal say that Shimshon also never took anything from anyone. He says, you remember me, right? Zohrenina. And the Chazal say, remember 20 years that I judged Israel and I never took anything. Halavai, that we should have such tremendous leaders. And I think that that's, uh, you know, one of our great lessons here is that, you know, um, that, that kind of leadership, that selflessness is um, something to be admired. It's something to be uh, aspired to. And it's something that brings results. We see the Jewish people turning themselves around here in an absolutely amazing way. Okay, I'm gonna stop the screen share. Uh, Okay, so if we have any questions, right? So there, we learned a tremendous amount. I think one of the great themes in the Tanakh is leadership. And um, really, what a leader should be aspiring to and what a leader can accomplish. Okay, um, sorry, I kept a little bit over time. I hope that the math was not too annoying because it's kind of, it, it was kind of necessary to go through that. Okay, guys, you wanna unmute yourselves? You wanna say anything? Any questions, any comments, any hellos? Thank you, Rabbit and Sharon. Can I ask a question? Okay, sure, who's that? Um, this is the, uh, yeah. Okay, hi. Hi. Um, is uh, I heard that uh, Korach is descended. No, uh, sorry. Shmuel Hanavi is descended from Korach. That is correct. Oh, wow. It says, it says clearly in the Chumash, not in Parshas Korach, but later on in, in Midbar, it says, B'nai Korach Lometu. The sons of Korach did not die. And in fact, we have a few Tfilim that, uh, uh, a, a few Tehillim that are Shir Mismol of Korach. The Bnei Korach did tshuva. They did not follow their father. They said, the Medrash says, has them saying, you know, when, when uh, Korach is punished, they're saying Moshe emet for Torah to emet, that Moshe is truth and his Torah is true. And so they are saved. They're not punished. 
and there and Shmuel is one of their descendants, yes. And the Medrash goes on in different places and it talks about the fact that Shmuel descended from Korach was one of the, the things that Korach had realized. He had some Ruach HaKodesh, he's gonna have this great descendant. So he thought that he himself should be the, the leader. And that was one of the things that kind of led him astray was knowing that he has this great descendant. Yeah. Wow. It's a little bit. <laughs> so there's a lot of interplay between Shmuel and Korach and this week's parasha. And it's so interesting that the Haftar is also about Shmuel. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's funny because um, Korach was the anti-leader and Shmuel is the, the prototype of a leader. Well, um, besides uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, so um, yeah, it's the the story of Korach is very sad because you know Rosh talks about it that that Korach didn't realize that the the position that you hold is not what counts. It's your faithfulness to your personal mission. Rosh has a whole discussion about how everyone has a mission. Everyone has a reason that God put them on this earth. And so you're not judged on why aren't you like this one or why aren't you like that one? You're judged on how well do you fulfill your own mission, which is, that was Korach's mistake. He thought that you know, he needed to be in Moshe Rabbeinu's position in order to accomplish things. It's a very interesting discussion of Soledadchik, but yeah, sad story, Korach. And the, the saddest part to me in a certain way is like Moshe Rabbeinu was like, oh, what, what did I do to deserve this? Like, why are you attacking me, right? What, what did we ever do? And Dafka, a person who was so selfless, how can you come and say, you know, Madua, what makes you so great? Moshe says that Hashem, I didn't take anything. What did I ever do to them? I only, only did good for them. But, you know, jealousy is uh, kind of without any, um, I didn't start thinking Hebrew. It doesn't have any self um, restraints. It's just sort of mushrooms in a person's mind. Your imagination takes you into places, you know, and it's destructive. But yeah. But he does have great descendants, his own children, and his descendants who sing in the base of Migdash, the Bnei Korach, who, you know, say the Tehillim and Shmuel. So, yeah. <laughs>